From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Across the country, spanning all demographics of people, the Affordable Care Act is widely debated. From Medicaid expansion to different methods of incentives, the healthcare system is complex, unclear, and can easily take advantage of vulnerable and uninsured populations. Dr. Ben Summers returns to Think Research to discuss his recent work studying how different states' approaches to expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act have affected vulnerable populations. Dr. Summers is a professor of health policy and economics in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is also a practicing primary care internist and an associate professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Summers, welcome. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you recently had a published paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association about high-risk patients since the um, Affordable Care Act uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh, could you tell us what a high-risk patient is in that context? Yeah, there are a lot of ways to think about medical risk and the risk of, of adverse outcomes. The reason we were exploring this issue in the first place is that with an increasing number of studies that have been done on the Affordable Care Act and on the Medicaid expansion, we have a broad sense that coverage has expanded, people have better access to services, uh, people are better able to afford their care, but there's still a significant interest in understanding the health impacts. And when you're examining that question, the populations where it would be most likely to matter whether you had health insurance or not are those who have high-risk medical conditions. So in this particular study, we were looking at uh, the population of people who were starting dialysis for kidney disease. And this is a high-risk condition. Uh, Mortality rates in some cases approach those of people with advanced cancer. Um, It's a a high-risk time as people are making this transition from their outpatient therapy to then starting dialysis three days a week. Um, You're getting uh, um, blood regularly taken out of your body, cleaned, put back in, there are risks of blood clots, of infections, and other complications. And so we were focusing on that key transition period where where these patients were initiating their dialysis, and some of them lacked health insurance for that period, whereas others, uh, especially those in the Medicaid expansion states, were more likely to have insurance for that. Okay, so could you tell us... um Uh, what you found, what kind of the major takeaways from this paper are? Well, the first was that there are a surprising number of people in this group who lack any health insurance. And, um, you know, while some some of the listeners who are kind of attuned to the policy world may know that Medicare, the federal program of health insurance, ultimately does provide coverage to people after they've started dialysis, that takes several months to kick in. And at the outset, uh, about a third of the uh, population that we were studying in in non-expansion states had no coverage when they initiated dialysis. So what we found is that the expansion led to higher rates of coverage, and we also see improvements in the kinds of care people are getting. They were getting some of the the important quality measures to reduce the risk of complications related to dialysis. And probably most importantly, we find that there's about an 8% reduction in that first-year mortality rate uh, in this population based on the Medicaid expansion. Since 2016, there have been a lot of threats. Well, and before that, uh, threats to the ACA that fear that it would be repealed. 
uh, and people would lose their coverage. Um, it hasn't been repealed, um, but it has. Has it been weakened? Well, it's undergone a, a, a bunch of changes. Uh, some of them have been through legislation. So, for instance, the um, Congress passed a law as part of its tax bill uh, that eliminated the individual mandate. So this was a, a penalty if you didn't have health insurance that you paid along with your taxes. And it was part of a whole host of policies in the ACA designed to improve insurance coverage to also make sure that healthy people were uh, participating in these insurance markets and that it kept prices premiums down for the, for the market as a whole. So um, the Republican Congress that had initially proposed repealing the entire ACA but fell a, a vote short in the Senate um, narrowed its focus and instead removed this individual mandate. Um, this is the first year, starting in 2019, that this mandate hasn't been in effect. So it's a little early to say how it's going to affect the overall law, but it's certainly possible that we'll see fewer healthier people signing up, that we'll see um, premiums rising in some places, and, and that can have uh, uh, some important effects on uh, both coverage and also affordability. The other uh, steps that have been taken have been not through legislation, but through kind of the oversight of the Affordable Care Act that's uh, in the hands of the executive branch. So the Trump administration has a lot of discretion as to how much outreach to do in advertising each year to get people to sign up for healthcare.gov. Um, what are the rules of participation for insurance plans in the ACA going to be? Um, and they've taken steps that uh, they would that the administration describes as opening up competition, trying to give consumers more options and reduce prices. Um, critics would say that they've allowed markets uh, into the marketplace plans that uh, don't um, meet some of the basic standards for coverage that the the ACA intended. They also have reduced the uh, ease for uh, consumers to sign up by shortening enrollment periods and doing less outreach. What the long-term effects of those changes are, are still unclear. We've seen some mixed evidence as to whether the, the coverage rates nationally have changed since um, the change of administration. Um, a couple studies, including one that we, we published last year, did show a, a ticking up of the uninsured rate in 2017 and 2018, uh, um, but other data sources haven't shown that, so it's a little too early to know for sure. Mm -hmm. The other big set of changes that are worth looking at are, are what's going on in Medicaid. And mm. this is largely based on state experimentation. A bunch of states have gotten permission from the federal government to, to try new approaches in, in the program, and that can certainly have some important effects. And I, I, I imagine we'll talk some more about that today. Yeah, so that brings me to my next question. You've looked at some of these uh, individual state strategies um, around expanding Medicaid. Um, could you talk a little bit, just to give us some background, about um, what... Why states expanded Medicaid differently or what the issue it was that you looked at? Yeah, I mean, I think this, this comes down to the fact that um, Medicaid, unlike Medicare, is a joint state and federal program. Every state has its own stamp on the program and makes a lot of important decisions about how the program is going to run. And there's a lot of uh, difference of opinion uh, nationally as to what Medicaid ought to be doing. And so that plays out in states proposing new approaches. And depending on who's running um, the federal oversight of Medicaid, they may or may not be allowed to do it. So um, this has been going on since uh, the, the beginning stages of the Affordable Care Act. Several states that decided that they were going to expand Medicaid wanted to do it in a, a non-traditional way. So for instance, Arkansas said, well, give us all the dollars for Medicaid that the ACA um, you know, authorizes, but we don't want to put people in Medicaid. We want to put them in private health insurance. 
We think that'll be better for them. We think it's better coverage. People in our state are not super excited about a big federal public program. So this is a better match for us. And so that's what Arkansas did. Um, meanwhile, other states have said, well, we'd like to make this look a little bit more like what people get through work. So really common nowadays is for people who get coverage through work to have a big deductible and often to have something like a health savings account to help them think about the cost of care and manage those expenses. So Indiana said, well, we'd like to do that in Medicaid where it hadn't really been done before. And so they, they implemented that. And most recently, we've seen states saying that we'd like to expand Medicaid in one form or another, but we want to make sure that the people who sign up for the program have a lot of incentive to work. We don't want people to, to not work or quit working because they have coverage. And so uh, this has been uh, a push towards so-called work requirements in Medicaid. Now, there are strong views on both sides of all of the issues I just described. Um, and we're starting to build some evidence to get a sense of well, what whether those choices matter and how they impact uh, the consumers as well as the overall cost of the program. So the examples that you gave Indiana and Arkansas, um, pretty different approaches. Um, could you tell us what the effects of those different approaches have been that you've seen? Yeah. So, so in Arkansas, they basically said, let's put people in private plans instead of Medicaid. It turns out in, in, in over a, a four-year survey that we did in Arkansas comparing um, low-income adults there to those in a couple other states, including Kentucky, where they did a, a plain old you know, regular Medicaid expansion, and in Texas, where they didn't expand at all. What we found was that it turned out it didn't really make a big difference whether you expanded with private coverage or Medicaid. The big difference was, did you expand at all? So we see that uh, low-income adults in Kentucky and Arkansas did much better in terms of affording their care, um, in terms of how they, they thought about their health, having primary care, prescription medications, and all that sort of thing. Those in Texas really kind of fell behind because their state wasn't expanding. But we saw very little difference between people in Kentucky who are getting Medicaid and people in Arkansas who are getting private insurance. So it seemed like the, the, the main message from that analysis was coverage expansion makes a big difference. The exact flavor of it's probably less important. Hmm. Um, but there are important implications for both the politics of this. How does it play right. in your state? And also the cost. Uh, right. Private insurance is more expensive because typically they pay higher rates to doctors and hospitals. So Arkansas probably is paying more than they would have if they had just done a regular Medicaid expansion. Um, Indiana was something uh, a little different, that they used uh, a public program, uh, but they made Medicaid look much more like other types of insurance where they, with those health savings accounts and the deductibles. What we found, again, Indiana looked favorable compared to states that hadn't expanded at all. But we did see that there was a lot of confusion for mm -hmm. Medicaid beneficiaries in Indiana. Uh, the details of these kind of deductibles and health savings accounts are pretty complex. You have to make a certain um, number of payments on, uh, to qualify for expanded benefits that included vision and dental. If you didn't make those uh, consistent contributions, you could either be removed from the program for six months or put into a, a, a more bare bones product without uh, some of those extra benefits. And a lot of people didn't understand when they were supposed to make payments, how they were supposed to do it. They didn't understand the purpose of it. Um, we surprisingly found that uh, a substantial number of Medicaid beneficiaries in the state had never even heard of it, even though they were supposed to be required to contribute to it. So they knew they were Medicaid, but they'd never really heard of these these health savings accounts. So, um, you know, the, there's a concern that this sort of program, while, you know, the, the, some of the incentives it could create might be beneficial, there's a lot of red tape. Uh, it's both difficult for the state to administer, and it, it's often quite challenging for um, the Medicaid population to really follow what's going on and to to be able to engage in the program the way that its its uh, designers intended. Hmm. So, what are some of the um, what are some of the justifications that policymakers give to uh, or for expanding 
in a way that Indiana did or in, in a way that Arkansas did, as opposed to Kentucky, where they just expanded it's just, you know, open up Medicaid to more people without any changes. Yeah, I mean, there are a variety of arguments. Um, one of them is is simply political, um, that there's a lot of opposition to, you know, Medicaid as a federal entitlement public, you know, program. And so in a red state with a lot of opposition to Obamacare in general, uh, that the way to get this passed was to put a unique state stamp on it and to argue, look, we're taking a more conservative approach that's more consistent with what our voters support, and that'll let us expand coverage, but not, um, you know, not on the terms dictated to us by Washington D.C. So that that's often an effective sales pitch for, I think, for for conservative states, and that's driven a lot of this. You know, kind of politics aside, thinking about the actual policies, the goals of these. You know these changes um, usually are are uh, based on a belief that the Medicaid coverage is somehow not great. Um, so you know, for instance, in Arkansas, the idea that Medicaid doesn't have enough doctors who are willing to take those patients, and so giving people the insurance card that says Medicaid won't do them any good. That turns out not to be true. Um, we have plenty of evidence that shows that uh, giving people Medicaid does ins- significantly increase their ability to get needed care. Um, but, you know, based on that argument, we've seen states say, well, it'd be better if we gave everyone private coverage. They'd have more doctors to pick from. Let's do that. Um, and then, you know, the this idea of charging people premiums and having them contribute to health savings account, uh, you know, I think it's a couple of, of, of arguments. One is that, you um, advocates of the policies have said this helps get people ready to move off of Medicaid into private coverage. They'll know what private insurance is like because they'll have had something more similar to it. Um, Whether that is true and whether that benefits them, it's not clear. I mean, if they end up getting private coverage, they could then discover how these things work. But um, that's at least one of the arguments. Um, You know, the idea that people are going to become better consumers of health care also gets a lot of traction. Medicaid typically is very generous, and there's there's pretty minimal cost cost sharing. You know, one, two, three dollar copays on certain prescriptions, certain kinds of ED visits. In some states, have a charge, but generally, go to see the doctor. You don't pay anything. Get testing done. Don't pay anything. Um, and so, you know, that's different than private insurance. And so, some policymakers have said, well, we would do better if people had to think about the, the value of their care before they they got it. Um, you know, the reality is Medicaid's actually pretty cheap. Medicaid's a pretty um, uh, low-cost form of health insurance by comparison to private coverage in Medicare uh, because the, the program is usually paying much lower rates to providers. And so it's, there's not a lot of fat there to, to cut out by making consumers more aware of what's happening. It seems like instead what happens is that people get confused and either drop out of the program mm-hmm. or just less likely to use services. So it's not necessarily saving money in a good way, but it might be driving down enrollment and having that, that impact for the state. Um, you know, the last kind of big area that we're seeing states experiment with now are these work requirements in mm-hmm. Medicaid. And the motivation there, you know, we've heard states basically say, um, we want to uh, be sure that that uh, the people who are getting this coverage uh, somehow, you know, quote unquote, deserve it. Now, we don't want people who could work but are just staying at home and, you know, don't have any sort of disability. They, they're just staying, you know, staying out of the, the labor force and, and enjoying uh, public coverage. And so if you you make their coverage, you know, conditional on satisfying this requirement that you either work or you have some sort of community engagement like, you know, community service or job search or caring for a child, 
that that could produce these kind of general benefits to society and also might help lift people out of poverty. That's the argument that, mm-hmm. that we've heard from the Trump administration. It's early to say whether that's happening because it's it's only been in the past uh, year, really, that any states have gotten to implement this policy. The, the Obama administration kept blocking it every time a state proposed it. The most uh, the, the first state to, to implement this was starting in um, the middle of 2018 in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a study to evaluate that and see, you know, does it actually lead to more employment? Do people change their behavior? Does it create red tape and confuse people? And and actually, so far, what we've seen in, in some of our preliminary work and also in some of the focus groups that others have done is there is a lot of confusion. Uh, people in Arkansas were, were um, often perplexed about what they were supposed to be doing and how they were supposed to report it. And many of them ended up dropping out of the program because of that. You mentioned in Indiana that one of the strategies they used to um, alter Medicaid was to add health savings accounts. And that confusion around that led people to be dropped from coverage. Um, Was there any effort on the part of the government in Indiana to educate people about the way that the, um, that their plans worked or were they just, were people expected just to learn on their own. I mean, there, there were there were outreach efforts, and you know, there are certain protections in place in in kind of oversight of, of Medicaid that these states, when they do something new, have to notify the consumers. But you know, if a cons- if the person in Medicaid hasn't updated their mailing address, or if they've moved, or if they've become homeless, uh, you know, they may not receive those notices. We all get notices in the mail we don't read. So you know, it's probably not a, a surprise, but it's nonetheless really troubling that in our data we found. 39% of the people who were supposed to be making these payments into these health savings accounts had never even heard of them. So when we told them, you know, have you heard of this this new account, it's called a power account, and you have to contribute it to keep your coverage and your benefits, um, you know, two out of five said, we don't have any idea what you're talking about. And um, could you tell us a little bit more detail about the power accounts and how they worked and um, sort of, and maybe a little bit more about like, you know, if I'm in Indiana and I go to sign up for Medicaid, what are my financial obligations. So um, if you're in the population subject to this policy, and by the way... The and who Medicaid, are the... Yeah, who's this population? Uh, oh, so that's, it's generally the, the Medicaid expansion population. And this means adults without disabilities who didn't have incomes low enough to qualify for Medicaid before the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these are, are either low-income parents or um, adults who don't have a disability, but they either don't have children or their kids have moved up and, and uh, have grown up and moved out. So um, the way it was set up was that the, uh, the first $2,500 in medical expenses, expenses for a person weren't going to be paid for by Medicaid directly. And so normally right. you would go get your care and it would get paid for by Medicaid. Instead, you have this $2,500 deductible where anything you use gets pulled out of this health savings account that the state has set up. Most of that money was set, up, set aside by the state, um, but the, pers- the individuals themselves have to contribute, and depends on their income exactly how much they had to pay month to month. Um, but So you'd have to make this, this contribution, and then if you went to the doctor or you need to pick up a prescription, you would pay for it on out of your, your power account, this kind of money that had been set aside. Depending on a person's income, they, there were different contribution requirements, but the maximum was that it, some individuals had to pay up to 2% of their income uh, for, to maintain their coverage. 
Okay. And so, you know, this is not, um, it, it's not huge, but it's certainly not trivial. So if you're earning, you know, $10,000 a year, low income person, right, you, you're, you're contributing $200 towards your coverage. Right. And if you didn't make those contributions, then one of two things happened. One was that you were, uh, if your income was above a certain level, you were just uh, removed from the program and locked out, couldn't come back in, even if you wanted to pay your premiums for several months, you couldn't re-enroll. And then if your income was low enough, the federal government had said, well, Indiana, you can't kick them out of the program, but what you can do is take away some of those benefits. And so this population would lose um, vision coverage, they lose dental coverage, which is really, you know, important and highly valued for this, uh, in this in this community. So what you end up seeing is uh, that due to, mostly due to a lack of information, but in some cases affordability, that people couldn't afford that premium, mm-hmm. uh, people were either ending up in less comprehensive coverage or they were losing their health insurance. And, you know, the, the state... Ha- had done this outreach effort, but um, and stakeholder groups certainly were very involved in trying to keep people enrolled. Right. Um, both community health centers, mm-hmm. uh, provider groups, consumer advocates are, are, were hard at work to try to get people to understand and satisfy the, the requirements. But um, that said, it was it was a challenge, and I think that that is a, a an ongoing issue, not just for health savings accounts, but for a lot of these program changes that, um, you know, this is, this is not a population that has a great deal of, of, um, expertise in, in health policy and health insurance. Um, a lot of them are below the poverty level. We know many have less than a high school degree. We also know that language is a challenge as not all are native English speakers. And you take all those factors together along with just the day-to-day stress of trying to make ends meet, not only focused on healthcare, um, it's it, it, it's predictable and really troubling how uh, these barriers are going to make it difficult for people to maintain their their health care because this is not the only thing they're thinking about and uh, and they often end up not able then to get the care they need. Mm. So in the population that you looked at in the study, how many people in Indiana lost their Medicaid coverage because of this HSA issue? You know, it's hard to... to identify exactly why someone loses their coverage, mm-hmm. especially when people's awareness of the program is, is so poor. Uh, a lot of the time, individuals are losing insurance, and they couldn't tell us why. They didn't know if it was because they hadn't made a premium payment, because they had moved, or some other factor. Um, you know, for the 40% who had literally never heard of these you know, accounts, they certainly weren't going to tell us that was the reason they had lost coverage. Um, overall, interestingly, despite the, you know, the, the fact that a lot of people were confused and there are all these barriers, we looked at three states in this study. We looked at Ohio, which did a, a regular Medicaid expansion. We looked at um, uh, Kansas, which had not expanded at all at that point, although now they're considering it, and then Indiana with this alternative program. And overall, most of the outcomes we studied, Indiana and Ohio tracked together. So Indiana looked like another expansion state for the most part. There were a couple of differences. We do see a gap on uh, the ability to afford care that was a little bit worse in Indiana than Ohio. And then, of course, we see all these people who said, I'm really confused about what's happening. So I think our take-home message in in the Indiana work is actually similar to Arkansas, mm-hmm. where when Arkansas did that private insurance model, which is that you know the the key decision is whether or not you expand insurance. And if you make insurance available to low-income populations, it's going to have a host of benefits to to your state and to those and to those families. Whether you add additional requirements and other complexities, you might make that program a little bit less effective, but it's still just miles ahead of where you'd be if you didn't expand at all. Mm. So. It seems like it's a good idea to expand Medicaid and putting all these restrictions on it just makes it more complicated and more expensive. 
you know, whether it makes it more expensive is tricky. It certainly makes it more complicated. Okay. And for some of the families, it leads them to either n- not maintain their coverage or to lose benefits. You know, is it more expensive overall is a kind of interesting question, and it ties into a broader question about the Affordable Care Act. Um, mm-hmm. When the ACA was passed, a lot of its advocates said, look, we're going to get people covered. We'll keep them out of the emergency room. We're going to save a lot of money. Um, it turns out that there's not really any evidence for that because mm-hmm. generally when you give people health insurance, they use more health care, period, not just uh, good preventive care, chronic disease management. They use a lot of um, inpatient, outpatient, emergency room care. So for the most part, when you when you give people insurance, you're going to see cost increases across the board because they're using more health care. If you want to save money in healthcare, the, the easiest thing to do is lock the doors and not let anyone <laughs> right. in. It's not a good form of healthcare, but that is a way to save money. So when these states, um, you know, expand Medicaid but then put restrictions on it, you know, they're probably burning extra money on administrative costs mm-hmm. and and running the complexity of these programs. But to the extent that they discourage people from enrolling. They probably save money. It's not a great way to save money. It's an inefficient way. They're spending more money on red tape and less money on actual health care for right. people. Yeah. But if you're only watching that bottom line mm-hmm. item, does the state save money or spend money, they save money when they keep people from signing up. Hopefully, most policymakers recognize that when you are you know, spending money on things like health care, just like in education and just like in transportation, you're investing. You're investing to hopefully have a benefit down the road. You don't do it just because you think it saves money in the short term, right? We don't build highways because it saves the state money. We build highways to, foster, to build the economy. We invest in Medicaid uh, to, or education to improve long-term outcomes like health or education. And then we hopefully see a more productive society. But um, you know, we have to be careful. We often apply a standard in healthcare that we don't do in other sectors, mm-hmm. which is this kind of wish that we're going to somehow save money overall um, by you know by provi- by improving access. And usually that's not the case. We usually spend more, but we um, are getting more. People are getting you know better access, better financial protection, uh, better health, and and those are investments that that I think are often worth making. What would you say to um, you know, a future state looking to expand Medicaid in this way? Like, what would, what would you say they should do? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, you can draw some conclusions from the preliminary findings out of Arkansas, um, namely that, you know, that, that clearly whatever efforts were being done at education weren't enough. Um, whether there's a, an easy fix for that, I don't know. Uh, you know, there, there's kind of a whole field of implementation science where people look at how do you how do you kind of take what's down on paper as your plan and really make it effective. Uh, I think the the complexity of the population we're talking about is one of the big issues here. Um, there is no one single way to reach a Medicaid beneficiary because you're talking about populations that span, you know, um, densely populated, fairly poor urban neighborhoods to remote rural areas in the state um, where, you know, it's miles and miles from the nearest healthcare provider or a public, you know, public agency. Um, you're talking about people who have, you know, variable access to phone and internet, um, people who move regularly, right? So you may think, oh, well, mail, everyone can get mail. Well, not, not if you don't have a permanent address and not if you're living in a shelter or if you have, you know, you know, recently been incarcerated or, um, you know, are, are just between permanent homes. So there are all these factors. I think community engagement is really important. Um, this isn't going to work just with a top-down state approach. My suspicion is that, um, you know, getting community groups engaged, giving them a lot of time to try to explore and explain to people, uh, getting healthcare providers invested. You know, my, my bias as a primary care doctor is that uh, things related to healthcare, it's often most effective when it comes from our, our team because that's, that's when our patients are focused on it. Most mm-hmm. of the time they've got everything going on in their lives, but when they're in the office at seeing, seeing me or seeing one of the, other, the doctors or nurses, 
that's when we can get their attention to say, look, we really need to make sure you, you know, you know that the state is changing these features. Um, but I don't know if any of those are magic bullets. And I think there's there's a reasonable argument to be made that um, it's so intrinsically uh, complex or burdensome to verify this sort of detailed information that um, some people are going to get fall through the cracks. And now you may you may find that if you can coax enough people to to ch- you know change their behavior, go get jobs, or do the other outcomes you're hoping for, maybe you find a trade-off that you're willing to live with. Um, but I, I don't I don't know that there's any way to implement this sort of program that you're not going to at least get some of the folks caught up in, in the bureaucracy and end up losing coverage. Um, so that that itself is pretty, uh, you know, I think it, it is, is pretty important for policymakers to recognize at the outset that it, there is going to be no way to eliminate these unnecessary, these unintended negative consequences. But um, ideally, you can at least minimize them. Do you ever get cynical when you look at these these things? Um, I don't get cynical. I do get frustrated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of the same talking points uh, that we know are not evidence-based keep yeah. getting trotted out, and uh, and, and there and no party is immune to this. So right, right. We we see a lot of it. You know, that the the campaigns are up and running now for the twenty twenty mm-hmm. um, you know nomination for the for, for, you know the Democratic primary and. There's a lot of rhetoric that either vaguely or sometimes explicitly makes the argument of, look how much money we could save if we were to cover more people. Mm. And, you know, again, that's just there's not much evidence for that. Mm. Um, you know, there are other reasons to argue to, to cover more people. Um, you know, there are policies that, that could save money at the same time as covering more people, but it's not because you're covering them, right? I mean, so if you, you, you know, advocates for things like Medicare for All will say, well, we can cover everybody and save money. Uh, just, just the mere act of covering people doesn't save the money. Now, if you eliminate private insurance and slash payment rates to hospitals and doctors, sure, that saves money. Um, that's a much more difficult argument to have. I think it's a very reasonable argument to have. It's a good policy um, debate point to figure out, well, is that something we're okay with? And what are the, the costs and the, the, the benefits? But the notion that, oh, by covering everyone, we save money just isn't true. And, you know, on, this, on the flip side, we hear rhetoric all the time that motivates a lot of these policies in Medicaid where they say essentially Medicaid isn't good coverage and people can't meaningfully access care. Well, we now have, you know, essentially uh, a decade of research um, well, and, and goes back longer than that, but it's really over the past nine years since the passage of the ACA and some of the early implementation efforts that we know Medicaid improves access to care. We have randomized trials that show that. We have a slew of kind of natural experiments evaluating this. So um, I, I don't get cynical. I do get frustrated sometimes, but I think the best remedy for that is, you know, is making sure that we get strong evidence out there and continue to to you know, pound on it to, to get people to, to hear it um, at least as much as, as we can sneak it into the argument. Mm. Do you feel like lawmakers, presidential candidates, are listening to people like you? Um, whether me, listening to me, probably not. But to people like me, sometimes um, I, I think it, it, it becomes part of the fabric of the conversation, that facts do often kind of embed into the conversation and and it's not necessarily that a policymaker says, well, wait, I saw a study. But, um, you know, we, we can sometimes bend conventional wisdom towards evidence-based wisdom. Um, the, the metaphor I use most frequently when, when people ask me this question is, uh, you know, I have, a, I have two kids, uh, you know, four and an eight-year-old who bring home a slew of art projects all the time from school. Um, and one of my favorites are the, the glitter projects, right? And you take a paper, you put glue on it, and you pour tons of glitter on it. You pick it up, you shake it, and 90% of the glitter falls on the ground, but a little bit sticks. That's my hope for our research. We throw a lot of research at the policy community. Most of it probably falls by the wayside, but if a little bit of it sticks, if a little bit of it informs the conversation, then I think we've probably uh, provided some some value and service to to the larger policy debate. Hmm. Great.
Dr. Summers, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much again for having me. Next time on Think Research. We have been trying to find a way to sort of lean in to the error rate. And what we have done is come up with a method that combines this newish technology with the older technologies and enables us to identify the strain that is present within a sample in a matter of minutes. Dr. Bill Hanage discusses innovative methods of identifying bacterial strains. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.com.